and action. Hello out there to all our 34 Circe podcast. And cut. <laughs> Hello out there to all our 34 Circe Salon podcast listeners. I'm Don Sam Alden. And I'm Sean Marlon Newcomb. Thank you so much for following this podcast and for your support for programs that explore the untold stories of female agency and adventure throughout history. This program is more than just something that we love doing, and we really deeply love it. It's also a mission for us. And we'd love for it to be a mission for you as well. So we've created an account on Patreon, a fundraising website, in order to help us fund the podcast and some other really great, really fun projects that we have planned. So if you're able, please go over to patreon.com slash 34 Circe and pledge your support. You can do a one-time donation or a monthly subscription. And any amount, even a dollar, helps fulfill the mission to help make matriarchy great again. So thank you for taking the time to listen to us in this exciting little commercial spot that we've given you. So <laughs> now on to the show. Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome back, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon, Make Matriarchy Great Again. I am Sean Marlon Newcomb, and I am here with, as always... Sean Sam Alden. Welcome, welcome, everyone. And the both of us are here with our fabulous <laughs> frequent guest and... Inspiration. Inspiration and elder full of knowledge and all that wonderful stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Vicki Noble. Happy Vicky to be here. Vicki Noble. <laughs> welcome, we, welcome. We, we really wouldn't have done this podcast had we not encountered Vicki and encountered sure. her work in writing. And it's always, uh, it's just, you know, it completes, the, the, the band is always back together when Vicky's here. So, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, all right, so... Sorry, no, I was going to say today we're going to jump into something that is of the moment and we'll certainly release this. Um, I, I doubt it'll be not of the moment, even uh, how long we release it. We're going to talk about this has been prompted by the war in Ukraine right now, um, that there are echoes of the things we've talked about in terms of the war against the goddess, which is a series that we had started in terms of the 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 research that had been done by Maria Gambutas, as well as Vicky Noble herself. In terms of old Europe and the region of old Europe, which, of course, Ukraine is part of. And uh, we thought it would be a great topic for discussion. And Vicky, in particular, had a lot of thoughts on it. So we're really just going to kind of hand this over uh, to Vicky and and really talk, you know, follow along and kind of look into some of the issues that are arising as we see this war unfold. Okay, yeah. Yes, tell us how this has all happened before, Vicki. That's what it seemed like, you know, when the invasion started uh, over a month ago, that's what I felt, like I was having a deja vu. I, all, this, all these years I've been researching 
old Europe and what happened to the beautiful civilization there when the Indo-Europeans rode in and ruined everything, um, you know, and changed everything, including our genetic makeup. Um, I just felt like uh, I had to write about it. So I wrote my feelings and thoughts, you know, in my regular newsletter, but I made it a prayer and I sent it out to my list. And the response was unbelievable. I had inadvertently touched a nerve. Mm. I had no idea. I never knew I had so many friends, not just friends, but colleagues and acquaintances in my network who come from Ukrainian ancestry. And they all let me know it. And they were really pleased that I had written about the Ukraine because what I kept seeing before I wrote the letter was the the ancient and the modern, you know, what's happening today and and what happened uh, 5,000 years ago. It just, it seemed like a repeat. So I, uh, I got a lot of responses, much more than usual. And, uh, and then I posted the letter on my Facebook site with pictures of all the beautiful pottery and the female figurines made by the old European people, or I should say women, in Ukraine at the end of the Neolithic period. They, they call it in, in the Ukraine, they call the Neolithic uh, era, the Kukutem Tripoli uh, people before they were destroyed also by Indo-Europeans about a millennium later. And 62,000 people have responded to my Facebook post. That's never happened before. (laughs) Wow. And, And they've made hundreds of comments and they're sharing it with others. And, you know, I just realized, wow, it's not just me thinking about this, you know. And people were very grateful for the pictures and the, the beauty of the old European culture that existed there. And I should, I should really um, separate the two out so that technically we're on solid ground here. The, the old Europe, uh, technically the Danube culture, grew up around the Danube River. And that's after the farming people had migrated from Anatolia into Crete and Greece in the seventh millennium. And then, can you um, just geographically contextualize the Danube just for the listener? Well, it runs all the way from, you know, I don't know where it starts, Germany, all the way to the Black Sea. And so it runs through many countries. It separates uh, Serbia and uh, Romania, for example. And it separates, let's see, who's next? Bulgaria to the north. Who I don't know. I can't remember what's south. My geography, you know, I always have to look at a map. But anyway, it's uh, it's a vast uh, area, and the 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 most well known, I think, uh, part of the old European culture is in what we used to call Yugoslavia, the um, along the Adriatic Sea and <clears throat> and along the Danube in that area. Serbia and Romania is a really good way to think about it. Um, anyway, that culture was a mix of Anatolian farmers and local hunter-gatherers. And in the Ukraine, the Neolithic culture originated around the same time. It was around 6200 BCE, but it was uh, on the grassy steppes along the, along the Black Sea, especially the eastern 
top of the Black Sea, from the Sea of Azov west to the Dnieper Basin. And the Dnieper River uh, is one of those five rivers that start with the letter D that pour into the Black Sea. And they're all connected with the goddess Danu. Um, and they, you know, they have a lot of history. Um, the Dnieper Basin, if you want to really think about it in a current sense, think Mariupol. So those people were a mix of forest steppe culture with Caucasus-speaking uh, people that had come from, uh, from the West. I mean, sorry, from the East. And, and they were unrelated at the time to the Danube inhabitants. Later they get related, but uh, they weren't uh, in the Neolithic. So just that's just a technicality, but to keep us on... Uh, Good academic standing. So just just to, so to be clear, these are two really separate cultures that are similar. Yeah. Uh, correct. Okay. In totally terms of similar their structure. Yeah. Okay. And that became very important. Uh, I'll I'll mention it again when I read a little from my letter. But uh, because I'm so distraught over the war, I I do want to keep sharing the ancient history and the images and everything. But also I'm very disturbed by the kind of language being used to talk about the war and what should be done about it. You know, what, what we call the narrative that we are exposed to every day on news and media sources. And I want to try to put my comments into a context that I'm hoping will help us uh, sort of understand more deeply what's happening instead of, you know, there's so much warmongering language that immediately began to happen. You know, every time Biden opens his mouth, I wish he wouldn't. Please don't uh, threaten Putin one more time. Uh, there, so, there's also, Vicki, uh, you and I had talked about this that I, I thought was, that I found really odd. Uh, I should, maybe odd's not the best way to put it. Uh, it's not, It's expected, but I'm surprised at how quickly it came about, which is the warmongering language also in the context of the glamorizing yes. and romanticizing of the warrior. It became this kind of like yes. almost fetishizing of the whole thing. Yes, I agree. Exactly. And, you yeah. know, we are we are not in any way impugning the bravery of people who are defending their country from an invasion. But what we're talking about is this over-the-top language about yeah. how... The glorification of war. Yeah, you know, exactly. We, just, we go there so quickly as a culture and so easily, yes. and it's so dangerous. And I just, I feel like it sort of separates out the, the people who are the patriots and mm. those of us who actually prefer nonviolence and nonviolent solutions and want peace on earth. Yes. You know, and a lot of the work with Gimbutas and Old Europe is particularly because it it reflects a time when we had peace on earth and for a sustained period of time, at least 1500 years, probably much more since uh, so much of it came from the hunter-gatherers in the earlier culture as as mixing, you know, with the farmers. I mean, there's so much history and prehistory that was peaceful and goddess oriented. So anyway, I could go on about that forever. Well, and there's, there's also an aspect of it too, that when we think about the, the glamorizing and 
of this. Again, it's good to point out that no, we're not impugning anyone who fights, and, and there are people fighting, boys are you, and and women and girls, but uh, men and women are sent to fight. You know, all wars are fought by the people and not by the leaders who are bringing them about. But what I find interesting about this case and the glamorizing of it, we've had some huge conflicts that have occurred before all through this century, usually not in Europe, however. And there wasn't the same kind of fetishization of the, the warrior as with this case, because now we have Western men talking about a Western war. And I think that is something to not be missed either. It's this idea that you myth make for yourself. And you, and that's what I think people are looking at. This is a horrible situation, a very difficult situation, uh, a, a needless situation, and people are being killed and displaced, and their lives have been ruptured and destroyed for someone's own narcissism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And but at the same time, people are taking advantage of that to create mythic mythical narratives that serve them and not the people who need to be defended. You know, the uh, Doctors Without Borders I saw today are um, trying to get in from the east to Mariupol and bring aid. And they, they just, you know, haven't really been able to accomplish it yet. Uh, it's, it's so terrible to watch. So anyway, let's, let's go on. Um, I think I will read a little from the newsletter I sent uh, just to give a tone. Um, I started at saying, uh, prayers for the Ukraine. We need a divine intervention in Ukraine. And then I say, I, I suppose most of us in the West don't really know much about Ukraine. It's amazing history, archaeology, mythology, art, religion, and culture. It may just seem like some outlier of Russia with a communist bloc past. But no, Ukraine's foundation is the old European QQ10 Tripolier culture that Maria Gimbutas taught us about back in the 1980s. And now her work, supposedly debunked, has been validated by recent DNA studies corroborating the dramatic history she proposed through her meticulous archaeological investigations. The old European culture grew up around the Danube. Okay, I already said all that. Um, it evolved as peaceful, artistic, ritualistic, innovative, and female-centered or matristic, as Gimbutas called it. The figurines of snaky women sitting in a circle on special chairs, a council of women, were found inside a large ceramic pot created in the 5th millennium BCE, which is known as early QQ10 culture. Gimbutas called them snake goddesses, probably used for the reenactment of rites. So I put pictures of all these things in my, in my newsletter. <clears throat> in, the, in the middle of the 5th millennium BCE, around 4,500 or so, steppe tribes from north of the Black Sea to the east uh, and north of Ukraine made forays into the old European sites and learned of their cultural wealth artistic objects, script, joyful ritual. They were most especially attracted by the gold, which was originally hammered into jewelry worn by priestesses of the goddess religion. The invading Proto-Indo-European males were buried in large mounds called kurgans, and their influx into old European sites wreaked havoc on the peaceful farming people, 
sending them fleeing into caves, mountains, and islands for refuge. And all of this was thoroughly documented by Gimbutas in her 1991 uh, magnum opus, The Civilization of the Goddess. Um, I'd like to read uh, a quote about Gimbutas from, this is from a 2019 article in New Scientist magazine. They, they end by saying, surprisingly, let's see, this uh, the idea of genocide isn't a new idea. Some prominent 20th century archaeologists were convinced that migrants from the steppe arrived in Europe about 5,000 years ago. One of them, Maria Gimbutas, even argued that they were exceptionally aggressive individuals who brought violence and social change to the continent. Her ideas were deeply controversial in her lifetime. But ironically, this is a quote, the geneticists are now coming quite close to what Gimbutas was writing about in the 1960s. Uh, okay. Wow. And then uh, I have coming a couple- quite close. I love how they put that. Coming I mean, quite close. I mean, that's, that's, that's an admittance. I'll take it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then it I stopped to- just short of endorsement, but you know, <laughs> that's what they all do. It's just hilarious if it weren't so sad. Um, there's a 2017 article, a couple of years earlier, from uh, Life Science Online. And the headline I love the headline Culture Change War Bands Hooked Up with Neolithic Farm Women. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's a reference I, to the. I, I- that they that one drives me nuts. Yeah, that drives me nuts. Don, Don, and I joke about that a lot. It's like, again, this is why I call it a fetishization. It is. It's like, let's just turn this into something where it's like, instead of this war rape and civilization destruction, which is what it was. Yeah. Let's somehow spin it into this really cool. You know, let's make it into like the three hundred, and, and it'll and, be these. You know. And remember that. Uh, you know, there were three waves, as Maria Gimbutas described them, uh, the Kurgan waves into old Europe. And the third one, around 3,000, from 3,000 to 2,500 BCE, destroyed everything. And uh, the and it and in the DNA record, of course, is where we see then that all the old European male farmer DNA is gone from the record. Yeah. It's, it's a really important point. I want to stay with it. I know we want to keep with the echo, but I want to just ask you to, because you talk about the three waves, and we had been reading, just for the listener, uh, Who We Are and How We Got Here, which is a book by uh, noted uh, geneticist David Reich. And so they talk in that book not about Maria Gimbutas, which is notable, she's barely <laughs> mentioned, um, but the bell beaker, the corded ware, and the yamnaya. Are those the three waves that that were refer are we on the, just uh, so no, i know is that one to one okay just wanted to make sure okay no. so what's no, how, how what, are the, what are the ways that maria talked about that well she doesn't call them anything um and they mm-hmm. we don't even know exactly what the culture was but archaeologically she recorded uh what a lot of the uh the sources have 
talked about, there's a kind of a line that you can follow, you can track mm-hmm. because of the kurgans, because of these burial mounds with uh, a guy at the center and sometimes some dead women and children buried with them and <clears throat> things like that. She, she, she clocked all of that for the first wave, which was didn't extinguish the old European culture, but it really, I think it wiped out the Karanovo tell and a lot of the important sites near the Black Sea. Um, the second wave did more damage, and, and she documents the way that each, each wave, each time these uh, forays into old Europe happened, it destroyed some sites, and it pushed people to flee and move into other sites that were already occupied where they created what she called hybrid cultures. Uh, and that continued to happen. And she, she really documents it. It's like reading a, a mystery novel or something. You know, it's really quite a page turner. Uh, I, I'm, unfortunately, most of the archaeologists uh, don't seem to read that book, which is well, the most important one. Here's what here's what that says in the book I just mentioned, and so you can comment on this because it it's it's exactly what you say. It points something out without actually kind of re, you know reading the page turner, so to speak. It says the um, the increase in the intensity of the human use of the steplands coincided with a nearly complete disappearance of permanent settlements. Almost uh, all the structures that the Yamnaya left behind were graves. So let me read that again. The increase in the intensity of human use of the steplands coincided with a nearly complete disappearance of permanent settlements. Almost all of the structures that the Yamnaya left behind were graves. You might think that's a a really interesting thing that they would dive into because you're alluding to it, but no one seems to, like you say, look through this much further well it's a little bit it's a little complicated what you're bringing up sean Mm -hmm. because in the ukraine itself um as i understand it the early neolithic cultures developed along the black sea and Mm -hmm. um they they were kind of uh step grasslands i think and um and the people were able to live there until the weather changed and it became very arid and so the Neolithic people, this is like in the sixth millennium, you know, mm-hmm. had to move further north and stuff like that. So part of part of what he's saying might be related to the fact that the they talk about the Neolithic culture along the edges of the Black Sea collapsed because of that sort of desertification or that uh, drought, basically a drought. And um, and so I'd have to, uh, we would have to look carefully at what he's saying, make sure it's when they went into old Europe and left their Kurgan burials that, uh, that, that matters in terms of our conversation. He, he doesn't say specifically, he's talking within the context of just the waves of migration at this point. So I don't, but so I to your read- point, we don't, we don't know what he's saying specifically, whether he's talking to what you're talking about right. just in the context right. of that that writing he points out just the fact that you have this disappearance and settlement and only the only thing that the yamnai are leaving behind are grave mounds not and, and, settlements. and certainly that has to do with the fact that they took up uh horses and wagons 
Absolutely. Yeah. They became mobile. Uh, yeah, and he's, he he's saying say, it in the context of there. Yeah, yeah. he does say uh, a couple of sentences later, the wheel and horse so profoundly altered the economy. Yes, that, there you go. Yeah. That they led to the abandonment of village life. Yes. People lived yeah. on the move. Yeah. So, so that's, yeah. that's not, and it, they didn't kill anybody. Presumably. Well, also that paragraph, though, Don, is also in the context. He's talking about the wheel and the wagon, but he's not. that's still in the context, I think, of him from the earlier paragraph saying when they had already moved into these areas. So the replacement of it. So maybe he's saying they didn't kill but the replacement of what was there was with what we just mentioned there, which is the wagon. And he doesn't, yeah. And he doesn't speculate about how voluntary that replacement was. Exactly. (laughs) That's the thing that I found curious about that, that paragraph, because it's, we don't, that's the thing. It's one population was there. It's gone. Another population was in. Yes. Or not settled. Or the, the new population assimilated. The indigenous population, kind of like we assimilated the Native Americans. Right. <laughs> well, he has a whole section in that chapter about that too, where he talks about was that one possibility that basically, oh. as those people left, or as they decided that some of the incoming tribes were coming in and utilizing the the land better than the people who were there before. So that's one of the theories. He well, talks about. Here's, but yes. here's an example of Reich <laughs> at his worst um, in a 2017 New York Times article. So again, this is five years ago, you know, and the mm-hmm. the book is uh, more recent. Um, but anyway, he said he wrote in relation to what happened in the Iberian Peninsula, which is kind of similar. Um, such a nearly complete Y chromosome turnover could have happened when powerful local women formed alliances with elite foreign men who have culture or religion or some degree of military power or lands. And so there's a complete rejection of the local male population. Is that incredible? Oh, my God. I mean, that is like working really hard. I've got my head in my hands because I just (laughs) I just cannot. I mean, it is, you know, as we as we started this segment with it's this glorification, almost fetishization Uh of the powerful males yeah, who the come in on their horse. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. And clearly the, you know, the local female populations who were, you know, according to some of the archaeological findings, clearly in positions of power and influence in that Iberian society, you know, clearly yes. they just yeah. saw exactly. those, those incoming Indo-Europeans and just swooned. They were so <laughs> dreamy. When they hooked up, <laughs> when they hooked up, you know, they were hanging out at the bar late at night and these Indo-Europeans came in and they were like, baby, baby, baby. <laughs> oh, we are. Uh, oh, anyway. Reverend. Well, no, no, I think, I think, I, I think, I think that's, I mean, if you talk about the echo, that's kind of what I'm hearing when I hear talk of the war now, because a lot of the talk of the war is how, uh, I heard a late night pundit talk about how women are now drawn to these macho 
warriors. And again, as, as John pointed out, we are not diminishing the bravery of, of these men. They were talking in particular about Zelensky. So let's just make it specific because I don't want it to seem like we're in any way diminishing the, the bravery of the, the men and women oh. who are fighting on the front I'm line. sure but the old was, Europeans fought back too. Yeah, Absolutely. no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's the point we're bringing up in this yeah. context where yeah. it becomes this kind of thing where, uh, and I've noticed this in other events recently, if you can find a justification for it, you can then find a way to glamorize a particular sort of violence. And so that's that's what we're talking about. And and contextually, it echoes back to this, this rupture because one of the things you, I, I think, pointed out, Vicky, was that this replacement that they're talking about, would, you know, it's sort of like some kind of, a, you know, ancient Tinder hookup was really something where you can see in the archeological record wasn't wasn't it very clear that there were uh, some of the bones and skulls that were found had clear uh, signs of trauma, like violence and trauma? Ah, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to look again. Okay, uh, I, I won't. Let's let's not let's just put that out there to be looked into because I thought I had come across that in my well, research. that may be that may be. Um, so it seems less likely that these guys you know beat themselves in the head so their you know girlfriends could mate with Yamnaya. Yeah, but just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of the first and second waves, uh, what I'm interested in, in terms of the Ukraine right now, sorry, in terms of Ukraine, don't, please correct me anytime I say the Ukraine, that's a leftover, you know, from the Soviet times. Right, right. Yeah. Many of the early Danube refugees living near the Black Sea apparently fled to Ukraine, just north of the Black Sea, and joined the like-minded people there. This is what I wrote in my newsletter, creating in the late 5th and early 4th millennia great mega-cities, as the archaeologists have named them. But the academic scholars are puzzled. These huge cities appear to have been egalitarian, without centralized government or class stratification, and yet they grew to enormous sizes, like 40,000 people in some cases, long before the rise of the state in Mesopotamia or Egypt. And so they want to know, how is it possible? How did they govern themselves? The cities were built in several concentric ovals with the houses close together, forming quote, defensive concentrations of population at a time of increased conflict. So the refugees fled to Ukraine, where they were already friends with the locals in some way, and uh, simpatico in terms of culture. And they they lived together in those very large cities uh, for gosh, I think at least 500 years, maybe almost a 1,000. But eventually, even these cities were also destroyed. All of the houses were burned simultaneously. That's a quote. Um, and the inhabitants fled to the west coast of what we now know as Turkey and other places. Um, this is all from The Rise and Fall of Old Europe by David Anthony, uh, an article in a bigger book called The Lost World of Old Europe, edited by David Anthony. Um, but I want to point out that, you know, Berkeley's archaeologist Ruth Tringham built her career for the last 20 years on this totally contrived uh, imaginary scenario 
about the people burning down their own houses in old Europe. She created it into a real story, you know, that they've been teaching in archaeology for 20 years. And it's just completely uh, erased in this wonderful moment with the new DNA material, you know. What was her justification? I mean, what was her explanation for why people would burn their own houses down? Uh, let's see. Uh, I have stuff. I don't have it in my hands. It was like ritual. And, uh, oh, so, it was so- ritual to go beyond, you know, from the old traditions, you know, mm. like they were liberating themselves from the old which know you know, old European people did not liberate themselves in that way. The way that they were liberated was in the incredible sustainability of their culture for such a long time. And the, as Gimbutas pointed out many times, the motifs and symbols and uh, and ritual art and all of that, you know, it 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 was conservative in the sense that they. Uh, they kept, it's like an oral tradition. They kept the same symbols over time, like they do in Peru in the Andean cultures and like they do in so many indigenous cultures. They're inherently uh, conservative, not in a political sense, but in the sense of protecting and sustaining what they love. And then, uh, you know, for the last, I don't know, six or 8,000 years, uh, even after those cultures were disrupted and destroyed, the women's uh, culture in all the, all the places in uh, Eastern Europe and, and parts of the Ukraine and Russia and so on, a lot of the uh, women's culture has continued to produce through weaving and embroidery and uh, other crafts and arts and dance and ritual. They've preserved so much of what we know belonged at one time to old Europe. And that's- It's just so strange to me though, Vicki, that that argument, all these things in science we talk about, the the things we talk about with the matriarchy where you're giving you specifically, and Maria Gambutas, and many of other, you know, Jeannie Davis Kimball, anybody we're talking about who's who's been arguing for the truth of this, the history of these women, they've been predicated on facts, and they've been based upon arguments that are reasoned based on either things we have seen in the past, things we see in contemporary cultures. There, there's some reasonable argument for it. The notion that, and this is just my own point of view, you guys may disagree. The notion that a civilization civilizations typically or people typically just on a very practical level create uh standards uh places where they live uh long-term settlements for stability so that they can preserve things for themselves raise kids shelter you know all these sorts of reasons it seems a little weird unless you could show me some other good examples and maybe there are of people building settlements and then just burning them down. I know. Well, I mean, you I, mean, I can make up anything. Oh, it was they're trying to go beyond. Oh no, I could say, well, maybe they like fire. You know, that there's that's not an argument. You have to have some basis for your for your statement that you can show me that makes sense and that justifies and bolsters this argument. Just saying, well, they're probably just trying to go beyond and not, well, I wonder who else could have burned these down. 
more likely it is what blows my mind. I mean, it's a settlement. Yeah. Most times people are doing that so that they can pass on something to the next generation that they can be secure and they can, you know, eat and, and stuff. And I see Dawn raising her hand. So <laughs> yeah, I will, uh, I'm just going to, I'm just going to uh, throw in here that there's a wonderful, um, uh, television long running television program uh, in the UK called Time Team and it's a group mm-hmm. of um archaeologists that go and excavate sites all around Britain and and you know film it and oh. uh one of the running jokes on that show is that when they find something and they have no idea how to explain it in the moment they say ah it must be ritual yeah. <laughs> so like that is the Thank you. that is the catch all exactly. phrase when you when you don't have any idea why something is where it is or how it is, you just say, ah, this must be ritual. Yeah, it's it's so it, – but again, I, I, that is perfect. And it's just the idea. I, I find my mind blown by the idea that people would ritually burn down your own it's, – it's just think of how we all feel about our own possessions. I mean, it's like would you just easily – you know, we get attached to things, our favorite pillow, whatever. I'm sure that we've, we're we not that different from our ancient forebears. And I doubt it would be that easy for them to just burn their own stuff down and, you know, start all over again. Yeah. Well, you know, what comes to mind um, is the Navajo, the Diné people, who I understand when someone dies, they burn that hogan. You know, that's one little mm-hmm. round house that a person lived and died in and and they do burn it down and i don't know anything more about it i'm sorry to be ignorant of that whole uh custom but it does come to mind just so that we you know that's probably they, uh, some archaeologists you know read that and <laughs> well but 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 even that vicky i mean that even contextually makes sense that person is gone and we burned the person's home down. But this sounds like, unless I'm mistaken, this was like a widespread burning, right? These were not just one house. Yeah, they burned the whole place to the ground. Yeah. Place. So that's 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 a very to me very different. Like I can totally see that, okay, you you're burnt, just like we burn the body sometimes, and we burn their treasured objects, maybe buried with someone, so you might burn all the treasured objects. But the thought that you would burn everybody's house down seems a real stretch for them. I mean, it's like, that's, yeah, that's going pretty far. And so. then, and anyway, when that happens, yeah. they don't know where the people go. So like, it doesn't even make any sense. It's really dumb. Yeah. I mean, we're bringing it up, Dawn. It's just because I, these yeah. part yeah. of this echo is to say, this is the kind of argument. This is these, the arguments made against old Europe and matriarchy are the arguments that these are fanciful. These are just these, you know, these dreamy ladies who think that there were like all these, you know, uh, lovely and peaceful matriarchal world and they're just kind of fantasizing making up well excuse me you guys meaning the art the the academia are making up half your crap too it's like you're pulling it out of your backside (laughs) anyway all right well you know i i recently watched uh a video of uh david anthony and his wife and jim mallory being interviewed by uh, Ernestine, sorry, I've lost her last name, uh, at UCLA um, for, it was very recently, and they were, it was supposed to be a tribute to Gim Buddhas. Ernestine Elster is her name. Oh, thank you. She's wonderful. Um, 
it was the opposite of a tribute. You know, it was a teardown. And they the level of condescension uh, was really incredible. At, at one point toward the end, Jim Mallory, and, you know, I should say, Jim Mallory and David Anthony, they're two of my favorite scholarly sources for the last 20 years in all my research. You know, they're smart, they're thorough. I love the ways that they focus and the work that they do. But I'm telling you, the way they deal with Gimbutas is shocking. And what Jim Mallory described was really interesting from a just a very personal perspective. He said he was he knew Gimbutas and what she was working on um, when in 19 uh, gosh, I think it was 68. And then he he went off for three years. He called it a sabbatical and he linked it to the military, but I think he did some other kind of work, some archaeological work or something. And when he came back in the early 1970s, he went to her talk at UCLA, and she had an audience made up of mostly women who were very enthusiastic, and she was talking about the rituals and practices. I wish I had taken notes on this so I know better if I'm telling exactly what he said. But anyway, he, he said it was all about you know birth and women's bodies and <laughs> women's uh, uh, processes, and that he felt like he had stumbled into a women's shower room, and that he, he basically never listened to her again. And I, I found that so interesting, because my thought was, bouncing off of that, yeah, and you know now you know how women feel, like we're trapped 24-7 in a men's locker room culture, you know? <laughs> right. So wait, 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 can right. you, who said it felt like he was in a women's shower room? Jim Mallory, James Mallory. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I know. I thought so. I just wanted to make sure I heard that. He's, right. he's, and so all, he's an incredible, you know, scholar uh, of Indo-European things and language. And he's just great. He, he wrote a book with uh, Victor Mayer on, uh, the Tarim Basin. Is that true? I, I probably have it mixed up. Jim Mallory and, yeah, I probably have it mixed up. But but it, anyway, take my word for it. The Tarim Mummies mm -hmm. is called. And he's just, a, he's a great scholar. And I'm so disappointed. But, you know, people are just people. And what, what we're seeing here, a lot of the time, I think, covered up with, uh, you know, glossed better than that with, with academic credentials and everything that this wasn't glossed it was a moment of spontaneity for him um so i probably shouldn't even bring it up but uh, no no i think i think it's significant because one of the things the again in, in this whole uh, particular episode that we have is this is to is to kind of like pull back in or, or pull open the draw open the, the the shades or the curtains so that we see that a lot of the things as they're being discussed in culture that are often um uh, talked about from the standpoint of this, these are just received wisdom from great men. Because that, that's, let's be frank, that's the way we look at stuff in culture. If a, if a serious man says it, it must be true. Yeah, male like, authority. But it, yeah, but but when you hear that this guy, that these guys are worried about, you know, or or their, their natural, not natural, their response to certain bits of information is that this is essentially too female. Yeah, it's you. Well, that's, Ew, it's you a know. It's a big factor. 
you know, it's that that ought to give some indication of, okay, well, let's then examine more deeply why they're saying what they're saying. Next thing you know, they're going to start talking about their periods. Yeah, exactly. That's (laughs) probably what was happening that night. (laughs) You know, the function that makes human reproduction possible. Possible, exactly. (laughs) We shouldn't be talking about that. The evolutionary leap to becoming human. Yes, exactly. The exactly. bipolar menstrual cycle synchronized with the moon. Mm-hmm. Ew. Ew. <laughs> That's so icky. <laughs> so I ended I, <laughs> I ended my uh my letter to my list by saying uh you know, Maria Gimbutas grew up in Lithuania, and that's why she was able to access and connect with the archaeology of old Europe. And the current culture of Ukraine carries remnants of these ancient traditions, which can be seen in their arts and crafts, as well as folk rituals and festivals. 9,000 years of peaceful and artistic values undergird this culture that Putin is now desecrating and attempting to destroy, a karmic throwback to the original Indo-Europeans. And I pray that the ancient goddess and her invisible helpers might intervene in some magical and transcendent way as the humans seem unable to respond appropriately. And, you know, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not saying that the Ukraine is pure and hasn't had its own patriarchal problems, because, of course, all Western cultures have had patriarchal problems in the last 5,000 years. Patriarchy is prolific and pervasive, and it's uh, any uh, developed culture is usually, at this point in time, patriarchal. So, of course, I got a couple of letters from people in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, who, uh, told me I was way off track because I wasn't, I was making it too pure. And, uh, but I'm not saying that I'm saying that this, that the old European culture undergirds the culture of today and that the, and that that may even be part of the inspiration, this earth based uh, sense of loving your land, you know, and being a part of your land. That goes way back. That's indigenous. Mm. And, and, and I think what you're pointing out, too, we understand that modern nation states are not pure. None of them are. Of They're all complicit in a system. But you're us. talking about the echo. Yeah, no, I mean, and, I'm, and I always say I'm a very proud American. But we have a lot of, yeah, we have a lot of issues. And, you know, but, the Dnieper River, it's really interesting uh, the Dnieper Basin, the Dnieper River, you know, that's what comes up when we look at all this stuff. And the the Dnieper runs all the way from north of Kiev to the Black Sea. It, ru- it runs uh, north and south. And uh, the it was in my work in the essay that we shared recently on one of our podcasts, the Priestess to Bride essay, I, I talked about the the priestesses buried in individual mounds uh, on the right bank of the Dnieper River in, uh, I don't know, 500, 600 BCE. And 
now we're talking about, you know, a culture on the right bank of the Dnieper River in 4000 BCE. <laughs> and I just, I, I just think it's so important to remember what history has gone on here. It's like mm-hmm. knowing in our own culture that Native American people have lived in peace, that the, you know, the Adena culture built uh, those incredible mounds and platforms in, in the Midwest and uh, near uh, and, and toward the East. You know, we've, yeah, we, have so much, uh, we have so much matriarchal history and we don't know it. It's not taught and we don't remember I mean, I think we do actually remember deep down, but we don't remember in our history books. Well, it's, it's again, it's the thing we're saying. It's the reason for this podcast. It's the reason that, you know, we discuss the things that you've researched for so many years. It's the idea, just like what we were saying a little bit earlier. If you mention these sorts of things about matriarchies, about matriarchal history, about things from thousands of years ago, you're told you're being fanciful and you're living in this little sort of like, daisy dream world where you're dancing through the forest with wood nymphs uh it whereas when you say anything about a patriarchal culture and you just say it strongly enough and with a deep enough voice it's believed so you know it 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 becomes this kind of thing where let's examine what we're saying there's a lot of fact and argument and reason on the matriarchal side that's being just dismissed out of hand because like you say it's too much like what do they say like being in a women's shower room or whatever like like that's the that's the whole thing about it that's it so and, you know there's a lot of argument here one thing that uh, that vicky mentioned in passing at the beginning was the idea of peaceful civilizations and how this um this narrative of uh you know the big strong man who's so sexy hot on his horse um that that the patriarchy requires war as an underpinning Uh for its systems. And that this glorification of the warrior is also a, a glorification of a patriarchal system, a system that says that might makes right. And that um, if you can take something, you should. Yeah. And that is antithetical to what we understand as the sort of psychology of matriarchy, as uh, enumerated by Heide Gertner Abendroth on her um, matriarchal studies, uh, in her matriarchal studies, that this, that this taking and taking over and, um, you know, grasping mentality and fighting mentality is 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 part of this wave of patriarchy that has oppressed the world for the last 5000 years or so and that in resisting the warmongering we are we are resisting that patriarchy and are um, honoring uh, the matriarchies that lived in peace before the yamnaya rode down off the steps <laughs> yes <laughs> Well, Vicki, is there any, uh, just uh, as we're coming to the end, any uh, closing thoughts that you want to share and leave the listeners with? Well, I guess, uh, you know, how I hold Ukraine myself at this moment in time is I just 
I just reflect on this long, wonderful history, her story, um, and the and the present day uh, expression of that through the arts and crafts and ritual and so on that still exist in the country. The beautiful singing, maybe you've heard some of that online. Uh, they've had several. Yes, yeah. People are presenting, you know, the Ukrainian singers because it's such a beautiful musical form. Um, and there's just so much of that. And I, I just hold all of that like a prayer, you know, and I, I feel like uh, that's really, that's really the underlying truth of the, of Ukrainian territory and all the land um, in those countries uh, around Russia. Um, they all have that Poland, Moldova, they all have those ancient cultures streaming through, uh, which we lack in, in this country. When, when Europeans emigrated to this country from all of those places, you know, they, they were, they had to try to be assimilated. And so I'm sure there's some, uh, culture left, uh, in terms of the sewing and the different crafts and ritual, but, but not much because they were really asked to become part of a melting pot. And to, and we, so we, even I, with my English and Irish and Scottish heritage, you know, left a lot of that behind and didn't carry it through in our family rituals and so on. Um, and it's a shame. When I go to Europe to teach and visit, it's uh, it's clear that they are just so much closer to the old traditions and the old ways. And you go up in the rural areas and in the mountains, and it's it's intense. They still have festivals that celebrate the the different goddess motifs. You know, they have snake festivals. They have uh, they have the festivals of the festival of the virgins <laughs> that I went to in Italy a few years ago. They have they have all these different uh, connections to their original costumes, and those costumes, you know, that were still being worn in the 20th century. Maybe they still are in some places for ritual. Those those costumes, and maybe they're in museums. Uh, they go all the way back. They have patterns and motifs that you can find in ancient pottery from these various places. So it's a it's a very long continuity of the women's culture and the 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 underlying love of the land and the earth and uh and the spirits uh connected with that. And that's what Maria Gimbutas grew up with. And that's why she was, I'm sure that must be why she was so open to what she was seeing when she finally dug her own sites. You know, she had grown up in this rich milieu of old European motifs and images still left from 9,000 years ago. And she knew it. She said she saw peasants in the summer when she visited the country, she saw peasants kissing the ground in the morning to say good morning to the Mother Earth. I mean, that's pretty far from our consciousness, mm. <laughs> you know. But we can we can think about it and reflect on it and and touch into it and try to imagine 
in terms of Ukraine, you know, try to imagine what that might mean. I mean, a lot of these archaeological sites from the Kukutin Tripolia culture are around Kiev. They're probably destroying archaeological sites that we don't yeah, even know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's <coughs> what I think of. You know, I think of all the bombing that's going on, and yeah. I think of there's more more history that's being destroyed in the process. It's, yes, it's just history it's and awful. and really continuity of culture. Yeah. Tony, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, I would just say that, you know, we do have that continuity of culture here in the United States, but of course it's not European, it's indigenous. And that, that, you know, lately more and more I've been thinking about in our quest for matriarchy, you know, restoring matriarchy and restoring matriarchal values that, uh, that we really need to turn to indigenous cultures who have kept these traditions alive and uh, follow in many ways follow their examples instead of yes um, instead of trying to i don't know reinvent the wheel you know we have that's why i'm really excited about the aswim conference the symposium that's coming up on april 10th because aswim the association for the study of women in mythology has been making wonderful conferences and symposia for Oh, at least a decade, I think longer than that, probably two decades. And they um, they are always bringing forth new scholars and new evidence of really important uh, kind of goddess-grounded uh, scholarship. And over the last five years, they've been particularly focused on uh, inviting in and uh, bringing together uh, Native women, Indigenous women here in the United States and Canada uh, to present uh, to the rest of us. And to, it's been incredible. Each time I've been at a conference, uh, each each year there are more Indigenous women speaking. And so there's more Indigenous wisdom coming through this feminist lens uh, and it's wonderful that these indigenous women are talking to us about matriarchy and about the god. Well, I don't know if they use the goddess so much, but you know about the Earth Mother and the uh, the prominence of all these uh, motifs and values that come come to us in our European ancestry from uh, the from the old Europe cultures. It's the same, right? You know, all the cultures, everybody came out of Africa, (laughs) all over the world. And so many of the fundamentals are the same in the indigenous part of each of these cultures. And our, our study of old Europe is going back to our roots in the most ancient way. It's taking a look at the indigenous cultures of Europe. Yeah. Yeah. So please, everybody, go online and sign up for this, uh, register for this uh, one day symposium. Uh, and a lot of Native women will be speaking. And it's all about the, the theme of communicating and uh, being with invisible beings and animal beings and non human beings. Uh, beings. Uh, it should be just fascinating. And there's a concert the night before. So it, it, I think it'll be really good. And I'm sorry it's not in person, but they've done a great job 
of uh, learning the tech. They really yeah. got the tech down so that it's, because it's not in person, you can you can participate no matter where you are in the world. That's, so that's right. wonderful. And, and they'll record it and it'll be available for a while. So it's really worth signing up for. Well, I'll put a link in the uh, when we post this. We'll put a link in there. Good. So, yes. Uh, we'll try to post this ahead of time because April tenth is coming yeah. up soon. Because really, uh, a number of the speakers are uh, Native women. That's wonderful. Which is, yeah. which is a really and wonderful. And Vandana Vandana Shiva, our, you know, <laughs> our avatar. <laughs> well, I want to thank both of you um, for your insights in this. Vicki, thank you as always for joining us and, give, and guiding us and giving us the wisdom of uh, the context of this, uh, of what's happening right now. So uh, let's give a big applause. <laughs> Yay! Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Don. It's wonderful to hang out with you guys. Thank you. And Don, thank you very much. How you deserve one too. Oh, I'm flattered. <laughs> I, I am Sean Marlinukum. This has been the 34 Circe Salon Make Matriarchy Great Again. Uh, this has been the War Against the Goddess. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll be back again very soon. Take care, everyone, and blessed be. Blessed be.